Hello, everyone, and welcome to Means of Creation. This is a special episode, as you may have guessed, since it is me and not Lee doing the introducing. But I could not be more excited to have Lee as today's, like, in the guest seat, basically. Uh, you're still a host. Once a host, always a host. But I'm kind of, I'm going to put you in the interviewee chair today. Are you excited? Incredible. I'm so excited. I feel like this is long overdue and it's been a while since we caught up one-on-one on this podcast. Side note, I also get a lot of listener feedback along the lines of, um, why doesn't Lee talk more? I want to hear more of her talking versus the guests that you guys have. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, um, that's not the point of this podcast, but I guess if people want it, we can give it to them. So here we yes. are. This is an episode where I'll be doing more of the talking. Amazing. And we're all we're all so excited about it. And uh, I, I should say we want to do more episodes like this, too. So if you have questions for us that you want, just like to hear Lee's thoughts on or my thoughts on, uh, just, you know, send it in. DM um, us. Yeah, DM or at us on Twitter. But anyway, so today, though, we have a very specific uh, thing to talk about, which is very exciting career moves for you. Yes. So, uh, you know, Atelier Ventures is deployed and um or like basically deployed you got follow on and that kind of stuff and and the next thing is a very very big thing a hundred and ten million dollar fund called variant that you co-founded with jesse walden and spencer noon and you're investing early stage pre-seed you know seed series a in companies building web3 is that the way you kind of frame it like building web3 or what's like the uh the kind of you know one-liner Yeah, I say that we are a first Czech venture firm investing in the ownership economy. Mm, Um, I see what you did there, the passion economy to the ownership economy. Yes. And a lot of people don't know what that means at first glance because the ownership economy is kind of a new term that needs to be popularized, just like the creator economy or passion economy. But essentially what it means is that we think that crypto enables all of these new platforms and services to be owned by their users who are actually contributing the value. That's what we mean by the ownership economy. We think winning products of the future are going to be those that give ownership over to their users. Um, But essentially we're investing in Web3 or crypto startups. A lot of the terminology is still under development, but I think um, typically people refer to them now as Web3 companies. Yeah, totally. So. The thing to talk about today, I think, a good starting point for getting into this big news of yours is basically why focus on this for you. And I think your journey has mirrored a general meme in some ways that people have, which is a very, very shallow meme and doesn't mirror your actual journey, but people, people might apply it of like, Oh, like, you know, the like guy with, with his girlfriend, who's like looking at another girl and his girlfriend was creator economy and the other girl is web three, you know, Um, like, cause there was so much hype when we started means of creation about the creator economy. And we wrote a lot of that hype. And then, and and now, I mean, not just wrote. And it, I would really like to say it. that we catalyzed it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And um, you know, now there's a lot of hype about Web three, and this is something that you've been into. For, I I got into a little bit more recently, kind of more um, down the rabbit hole, so to speak. And so I think this will be a really interesting conversation because we haven't honestly spoken that much since I got into it. Yeah. But you, you've been into it for really at least the past year. And probably a little bit longer was mm-hmm. when you probably first started thinking, okay, this is like a pretty interesting thing. But I'm just kind of curious, like, tell us the story of your journey to dedicating this next, yeah, yeah. this next next segment of your career to this movement in the economy. Yeah, absolutely. 
let's see where to begin. Um, I think my involvement in crypto actually dates back a few years now. Um, and that's because I, you know, lived in Silicon Valley and was working at a VC firm for a number of years. And so was witness um, up close to a lot of what was transpiring, not only in traditional software companies, but also in crypto. Um, I was working at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, I started there in 2016. And so I was there for the inception of the first ever A16Z crypto fund, which was one of the first you know, venture firms going into crypto investing wholeheartedly. Um, and I remember that period of time very clearly, like, oh, this is, this is a technology that we are deciding to take seriously and putting a first class effort towards. Um, and during that period of time, I would oftentimes tag along to some of those pitches of new projects in crypto um, and join a lot of the more consumer oriented ones. I think back then what was really different, this was about 2017, back then what was really different was that there wasn't that much activity going on in terms of consumer applications of crypto. Mm -hmm. um, the, the startup pitches were usually um, developer facing or infrastructure focused and it was all very intellectually interesting, but to me, the question was always like, how does this impact everyday people and, and just normal individuals around the world? How does it become a phenomenon that gets adopted by hundreds of millions or billions of people? That's always been my passion to, to work on things that reach normal everyday people. Yeah. Um, and as a consumer investor, <clears throat> I've always been focused on applications and marketplaces that could go mainstream and touch the lives of the people around me. Um, and so for a number of years, I would describe my involvement as, in crypto as like kind of interested, but from an arm's length, um, sort of intellectually interested, but um, feeling like there was still a chasm to be crossed in terms yeah. of consumer adoption. And um, that's setting aside the fact that I had purchased my first crypto around that time because I was like, I should probably just have some exposure. But yeah. it wasn't until I started Atelier last year in 2020 that I really began to um, actively invest in early stage companies in crypto. Mm. So, What was your first crypto investment? Yeah, it was actually Mirror. Mirror, mm. the blogging, the crowdfunding and publishing platform that's entirely crypto based. Um, so that was one of the first deals that I did out of the fund. It was around summer or fall last year. Mm -hmm. um, and this was still, I would say, like at a period of time in which people were generally qu quite skeptical, like your Twitter feed looks very different today than it did that time last year. Um, and I, that was, so that was the first um, crypto investment that I made out of the fund. And what had, what I had originally envisioned as a consumer, you know, traditional consumer software fund ended up being actually um, deployed into a lot of crypto projects. So a lot of mm -hmm. people don't know this, but Atelier Fund One, actually, the, most of the value is in crypto now. Um, yeah. And I, just over the past year invested in 
a number of different crypto projects, whether they were DAOs or early stage companies like Mirror. Um, I invested in investment DAOs that were purchasing NFTs. Um, but there, I, it, it came about really organically because the high level focus was the passion economy. How do we help people earn a living on the internet and give them new pathways to do what they love and express themselves creatively and earn money by doing that? And I wasn't prescriptive about what the underlying technology needed to be in right. order to accomplish that. I was really open to anything. And so as I deployed the fund and met with projects, inevitably, some of them were crypto focused um, and crypto based. And so I invested in Mirror, then I invested in Foundation, which is an NFT marketplace that's helping artists to mint and sell NFTs. Um, then I did a number of other deals, including Yield Guild Games and Syndicate Protocol. So at some point, I just looked up and realized like, oh, there's a ton of crypto projects that are in my portfolio yeah. that are, I think, working really on the cutting edge of what it entails to make money and build wealth on the internet. And like, perhaps this is actually representative of where the creator economy is heading. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say that there was like any like super clearly delineated turning point for me. It was mm -hmm. just a, a very organic um, evolution that happened over time. And, and in the end, like a lot of Atelier One's portfolio happens to be in crypto. Um, I would say like if there was anything of an aha moment for me, it was teaching my course earlier this year to a number of social media content creators about how to angel invest. Mm -hmm. um, because as you know, I've sort of been on this mission of creator empowerment and how do we build platforms that are much more creator friendly and actually help them achieve financial stability. And in my mind, they were providing a lot of the value to these new companies, but receiving very little compensation in return. They usually had to go external to the platform to even get any income from brands. And so I thought like, if we help these creators become angel investors and they can actually become equity holders in these businesses, then that would be much more impactful for them financially. And so I put together this cohort-based course that I designed and taught myself over the course of about um, a month, um, covering like everything that I had basically learned about investing over the years, how to source, how to pick deals, um, how to win deals, in a competitive situation, how to help companies after you invest. Yeah. And I took um, about 30 content creators through this curriculum. And over the course of that experience, I just, I realized like, oh my God, these content creators have so much social capital, but they actually can't invest in these businesses to any right. significant degree because A, most of them weren't accredited Right. Even if they were TikTok famous, TikTok at that point had been around for less than two years, which meant that they didn't even have two years of earnings history to be accredited. To be a, an accredited investor means you need to have income over 200K for two years mm -hmm. or net worth over a million dollars. And most of these content creators didn't qualify or they were accredited, but they didn't have that much stability in terms of income. And so they were writing angel checks of $1,000 or $5,000, which, right. you know, if these businesses are valued at 25 or $50 million, that's very negligible in terms of ownership. Yeah. Um, and so I just became 
frustrated during that experience really with myself for not realizing it earlier that it's it's not because of lack of knowledge that these people aren't angel investing it's because they structurally aren't able to do so or financially aren't able to do so and unless we find some other way of making them owners right they were going to be locked out of this ability to build wealth totally were you already at this point so like the interest, it seems to me, just like, you know, watching your tweets and, you know, having our conversations that we do on the show, that it really picked up kind of around maybe like January, February-ish of mm-hmm. 2021. At that point, and I, I guess that's probably a little while after you had, you invested in Mirror and maybe some of the others yeah. um, crypto companies. But like, I'm curious, like, was there a moment around this same time frame where you were like, oh, wow, like I was basically curious about crypto, but now I actually think that a lot of stuff is going to move to this, like potentially soon. Or did you just realize, oh, I think this is like, actually, I always thought that that would be big, but now I see how it's solving for the kinds of problems that I care about with regard to like, you know, the passion yeah. the thesis and all of that. I think it was a combination of a lot of different factors. Um, a big part of it, I think, was the fact that I had had this very prepared mind mm-hmm. because I had been thinking about creator monetization and creator empowerment for so long. And actually, um, recently, I was thinking back t- on this post that I had written maybe two years ago called 100 True Fans right? based on Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans. And I was talking about like, the future model is going to be a hundred true fans because if you can monetize a super fan to a much higher degree, then you don't even need a thousand true fans. You just need a smaller number. Um, and so when I saw NFTs come along around, you know, winter 2020, I was like, holy crap, this is, this is a hundred true fans. This enables actually mm. like 10 true fans or one true fan. Right. This is like everything that I'd been written about, but it puts like a really powerful technology behind it that unlocks it at scale for many more people. Um, and so I think around that period of time that you're mentioning was when I started to see, okay, it's not just abstract anymore. There's right. creators out there whose lives are actually being transformed through crypto totally this is going to be a question that uh it's the voice in my head of people who don't aren't bought in on the big idea the big thesis of web3 which is Mm -hmm. okay let's say it's great people want to sell some sort of digital collectible it unlocks you know kind of basically price discrimination from their very biggest fans with the most willingness to pay to basically get closer to the artist uh, that's all fine. Why do you need a blockchain for that? Why can't there be some platform that allows people to do this and it's just on that platform's database? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, blockchains are slow. Like, you know, the transactions have to be kind of huge to be worth it given how expensive they are. And like, what what would you say to that person who's kind of like, I don't get the connection deeply between totally. Web3 and this. I get that there's like, in order to sell NFTs to people, they have to believe that it's related to the blockchain because people are excited about that you know but like it seems more of like a marketing thing that it is like the actual blockchain technology is important if that makes sense to i think people who don't yeah absolutely um okay so i'm gonna back up a moment and then i'm gonna answer your question okay but i will get to the question so in general i think that crypto is like 
a giant building with a lot of doors around the perimeter. I've made this analogy before, I think, on a previous episode. Um, But basically, yeah, I think of crypto as like a big building. It has a lot of different entrances. And depending on which door you open and which door you go into, what you find may or may not be that appealing to your own personal values and what how you think about the world and your own motivations but because it's such a nascent technology there's all of these doors and all of these different angles such that i think there is a way for it to be appealing to the skeptics and like i think you just have to sort of look at it through the right lens or the the right angle to find that particular um alignment with your personal values but i i think it's just so fascinating as a space because it's attracting such a wide range of ideologies. There's people in crypto who are literally socialists. Mm-hmm. Like they, they self-describe as socialists. I'm, I'm not talking about myself. By I was way. about to say, you don't count yourself a winner. <clears throat> you got a whole hit piece written about you for being a socialist and you don't even. What, I, what? I, I don't self-describe that way. Um, okay. I want a refund there, from that newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Fake news. Um, well, I I mean, there there is an element of that, which I think is really important, but you know, sure. I don't, I don't describe myself under that terminology, but there's definitely a faction within crypto that, you know, identifies as very leftist and mm. cares about um, distributive justice and social equity. And then there's another faction of crypto, which is literally the complete opposite, which is more about, you know, the sovereign individual and what's mine is mine and no one can take it. And this helps me protect my assets and be, you know, I'm completely censorship resistant, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think like for all the skeptics out there, they just probably haven't opened the right doors and, and come at it from the right angles. But I think it's a technology that can be used in so many different ways. And I, I think that's what makes it really interesting and appealing to so many different types of people. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, your question of, of like, why blockchain? Why, why is crypto even needed for some of these experiences? I think that specific answer is, you're right that I think a lot of what is being done on crypto today could be accomplished in a way that doesn't require mm-hmm. the blockchain. You could sort of fake the experience with a centralized database. If you were YouTube, YouTube has such huge scale that you could create a faux YouTube NFT and just say that there's a hundred and sell those a hundred and not sell any more. And it's, and it's kind of like an NFT and the users would hold it. And maybe YouTube is such a big part of their web journey that it's essentially like you can take it from property to property yeah. all under the Google umbrella. But I think zooming out from that, like why the blockchain is needed is because it is essentially like a global database that anyone can tap into with open data that anyone can build on top of permissionlessly. And I think a lot of the current ills that we have in society in terms of misinformation and the centralization of power and leverage that a few institutions and companies have results from closed data and centralization of a lot of the information um, and networks that exist in the world. Totally. Like what's so appealing about it to me is the idea that the NFT that you own 
is connected to a wallet that you own that abides by the standards of Ethereum or whatever blockchain yes. it's built on. And anything else can recognize that that wallet is the owner of it. There's no one company like exactly. YouTube who has to decide to expose an API. The API is just there. It is the world computer. It is Ethereum, you know? Yes. And so there's no, it's more like physics than it is like yes. a computer or like a centralized database service. And that was the thing that was so crazy for me is when I realized the, this is to preview if we want to get to like what got me excited about it is I compared it in my head to like how massively more useful and successful open source software is than closed source. And what I mean by that, closed source services like Google or YouTube or whatever, those are very successful as compared to open source. But code, there's no industry for people to like sell source code to people that they pay to buy and then integrate into their app. There's a little bit like you can, there are exceptions, but generally open source completely dominated. And the reason why is because once something is out in the open, anyone can build other stuff that integrates with it. Yeah. And so people do. And so it becomes more useful. Like you can do different stuff or you can do the same things in a better or slightly different way. And it just compounds from there. And so it gets to the point where there's these whole ecosystems like Node and Ruby on Rails of all these interoperable libraries that nobody really controls, but a lot of people use. And it it really leverages network effects is what it does. It makes It reduces the yeah. it's sort of like the same reason why a paid Facebook competitor would not have won against Facebook is things with network effects like to be free. Right. And so, and so for it to just be open, free, interoperable is like huge because it's all, it, it extends the, it, it has a much more extensible value proposition basically. So it's going to end up really potentially being way more useful in the future. If your NFTs that you own hundred to lots of different places and useful used in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I think another way of saying this is I think, to summarize, like for the last decade, we've built all of these monolithic centralized applications where the user is essentially in service of those applications. Mm -hmm. By using Facebook, by using Instagram, by using YouTube, we're actually serving those companies. Most of the value is being extracted by those companies who are monetizing the content and the data that we're feeding to it and, and strengthening itself in the process. Um, I've, I've written this as like, by even doing work on the platforms, creators are actually empowering the platforms much more than they're empowering themselves mm. because they're feeding this flywheel of network effects and closed data that is then propelling these platforms to bigger growth. So we're moving now from this world of people in service of these applications to a web three world in which the applications are in service of the people. Yeah. The applications fade into the background because you're dealing with um, these standards that are open and assets that can be taken from application to application and are not locked into a particular end application, but instead belong to accounts on the Ethereum network um, that belong to people and they can decide exactly what they want to do with them and which application they want to use. Um, I, th I think this is also part of what's really interesting and different about investing in crypto. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, someone with a traditional consumer investing background, a lot of what I had been looking for is was um, networks that could become really dominant, things that could become natural monopolies. Right. Marketplaces were an example. If if a marketplace won, it would be a natural monopoly because you would want to go to the marketplace that had the most volume and the most suppliers and the most demand. But 
it's very different in the crypto world when a marketplace, for instance, is dealing with NFTs, which aren't proprietary to any given marketplace. And instead, most of the value in that world then accrues to the seller and the buyer, like the people on the ends of the transaction versus to the the middleman. Totally. It's like an email service provider. Like the the network that matters is email, right? And so nobody controls that. It's just a protocol. And, you know, Gmail can be a, a valuable business for Google in some ways, but it's kind of like they don't own the network in the same way that Facebook mm-hmm. owns their network or YouTube owns their exactly. network, Exactly, exactly. And it's really interesting to think about like, okay, so how, how do people monetize in that world and what is defensibility right. in this new universe? Um, sometimes I do feel like I've been transported to this parallel universe where the laws of physics are completely different and totally. how I evaluate deals and defensibility is totally different, but it's also part of the excitement of learning something new and just yeah, yeah having feeling like I'm relearning how to walk. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Well, it's kind of like you're in space and you're navigating with zero gravity or something like that. Yes. It's like there are some principles of motion that still apply, but you take one assumption that's been constant the entire rest of your business life and then like make it really different. And then it's like, oh shit, how do I rearrange the equation now to make it work? Yeah, it's totally interesting. I want to um before we before we lose sight of the of the question, I want to we started out by of this this segment by talking about why blockchains would be necessary kind of addressing if you're a skeptic if you think okay one true fan nfts great but like why couldn't youtube just launch nft why or why couldn't some new startup launch nft and i think to kind of summarize the answer it's it wouldn't be a part of ethereum's network effect and ethereum or any other blockchain potentially that might whatever (laughs) that might happen but let's just call it ethereum for now yes um and and the network effect is everything lots of people are building stuff that would allow you to take your nft and display it somewhere or you know take a wallet and validate that you own this nft so that you get access to some stuff and if it's not a part of that network then it's not going to be nearly as useful of an nft in the future potentially i think the the bigger macro uh reason why it matters though is ultimately where does power accrue does it Mm -hmm. accrue to the application that is issuing its own private quasi faux nft like youtube Mm -hmm. or does it accrue to the people to the creators who are creating those nfts and the buyers who are buying them and i think when it's not on a public blockchain but it's that it's instead on a database belonging to youtube then obviously youtube has the power and the leverage to do whatever it wants to extract whatever value it wants from those faux nfts sure that are being transacted. But why blockchain matters to me is because it enables a world in which power doesn't just accrue to siloed, closed off co- companies. Sure, totally. And that's like, uh, just to make sure I understand you, that's more of like a, a social good of a reason why we should want the world to exist more on blockchains than on centralized databases, rather than a um, like functional necessity for doing the basic job or something like that. It's like, uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, free range chickens or something like that. Like that's, that's probably better than chickens who are like, you know, made to live really terrible lives. Um, but it's, a, it's a little bit, it's kind of like, it's nice, but it's, yeah. it's less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the functional difference, which you had mentioned, which uh-huh. is that when they're, when they're Ethereum NFTs, on the Ethereum network, then they conform to a set of standards that 
means that they're all interoperable between all of the different applications that support NFTs. Um, and that empowers lots of new experiences potentially down the line for users. Um, but I think the, the so what of that is right. where power accrues in the world. Right. Totally. Totally. The, the other reason that I have for it, which I used to think was kind of like not important or fake or whatever, but then now I'm like, oh no, that actually is real and just has its own power. I'm curious if you agree with this is like, narrative network effects so like mm. theoretically you could have some non-blockchain based like nft marketplace that's just a centralized service but no one would care because there's a whole community of people who are completely bought into the idea of basically web3 and you unlock all that energy if you build on that network using those rules of the reasons why they're excited about that and if you don't then none of those people care and so then who are you going to get to care and I used to think that's, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like fake at first is what I thought. Cause it's like, Oh, it's, it's another way of, it's sort of like saying hype, right? Like it's like, Oh, people, the only reason why people care about NFTs is because people care about NFTs, but it's like, well, because people care about NFTs, people build things for the NFT caring world, which makes it more useful yeah. and makes more people care about NFTs, which <laughs> like makes it more, yeah. it, it, it has its own form of positive feedback effect, which is like the, if that's all it is, then it's kind of, it might be really strong for a little while, but it probably doesn't have a lot of durability. But when you combine that with the sort of like open interoperability, that's where I'm like, oh, this has a lot of, it has not only kind of like hard utility that gives it more staying power potentially, but like, it's like a, you know, sugar high versus protein. Like I think like the, mm -hmm. the sugar high is the narrative network effect and that actually really yeah. does matter in the short and medium term. And then the uh, long-term thing is the interoperability. That's more of the protein. Well, the, the narrative network effect is very interesting, but I wonder if it actually is impactful today because crypto is still a very small corner of the internet. Sure, yeah. And so if we just look at the numbers, um, like there's 10 million um, users of MetaMask, 10 million in the scale of the internet is a small, small percentage. Yeah. And so as a developer, do I care about tapping into the narrative network effects of Ethereum users, or do I care about building on Facebook and tapping into, you know, Facebook's billions of, uh, billions of users around the world? It feels like Facebook has the stronger narrative network effects. No, or I'm curious how, how you're thinking about that. I think that, Facebook certainly has the bigger community, but I don't know if there's a way to get that community to care about an NFT like mm -hmm. thing without the idea of like web three and what the internet could be in the future. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think the YouTube example is a really good one or like Spotify is another good one. Imagine if next to every video or song, there was a way to sort of like see who quote owns it kind of. And like, it's not the real owner of the IP. It's just sort of like, you know, there and it's, and it's not like a on-chain right. NFT. It's just the, and I guess actually this is an interesting question. How do like IP rights work with most NFTs? Like if I own a Beeple, does that mean I also have the right to like print it on t-shirts and sell them? I'm not entirely sure how it works for art and visual NFTs, but for music, the answer is usually no. Yeah. Um, like you don't have any rights to that, uh, recording and don't have any entitlement to the revenue streams that that piece of music is earning elsewhere. It really is just a collectible. Um, I right, think that's totally. probably how art works as well. I would probably guess. Yeah. If yeah. I was, if, I mean, 
the the way the copyright system works, I'm pretty sure, is like by default, you basically have it. You don't have to go register something in order to have copyright of it. It's not like a trademark, which is sort of like a separate thing where you do have to register it. Um, so I'm guessing Beeple's are just copyrighted by Beeple. And so therefore, Beeple can sell posters and t-shirts and whatever. And even if you bought the NFT of the thing, it doesn't give you the right to do that unless it was there's some other thing that you signed with people that's more of a legal agreement to share the copyright or whatever. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is, it would be interesting if Spotify or YouTube added some sort of quasi NFT feature. And then like, does it seem like people would use it? Because Facebook, it's a little bit harder to think about like, how would that work? Like, what would people be buying or selling? You know? I think people would use it. To I think honest. people would use I, it too. I think people yeah. care. They, they care about, I mean, they, they already care about social status um inside of these closed ecosystems through uh -huh. likes and retweets and follower accounts and that's obviously not unchained that's just un unique to that platform so i think people would care but i think the challenge that we have as mm -hmm. participants in this ecosystem is educating people as to why they should care about more than just right. this closed type of um asset or social signaling yeah um and i think the angle is is around the same rationale that i had been thinking about earlier around the centralization of power in the hands of a very small number of platforms today and so if people care about that centralization of power and want to do something about it and not just live in a world in which there's two dominant social networks then they should utilize this other um, type of like true uh, on-chain NFT versus just you know Facebook's faux NFT hypothetically. Right. It's so interesting because we've seen, I think, a version of this play out in podcasting. Mm -hmm. So RSS, yeah. open ecosystem. Anyone can build a podcast right. app that reads from an RSS feed to put up an RSS feed on URL. All you have to do is conform to the open standard that RSS you know, podcast apps expect. And for a long time, that worked really well, You know, basically because Apple kind of de facto controlled it but didn't exert any control. But it was kind of like vulnerable, basically, to a company coming in and making a better product and service in a more centralized way and, and using right. a lar leveraging a large network effect, AKA Spotify. And now, you know, Spotify, we, we interviewed their chief product officer. He was amazing. I'm, I'm really excited about a lot of stuff that Spotify is doing, but also putting my like open web hat, hat on, I'm kind of like, ah, it would suck if that went away. And so far, I don't think there's huge reason to think that it's like going away, but it's certainly, you know, Spotify has more power to make it yeah. go away than they used to, right? That's just undeniable. And what's really interesting, I think, about podcasting is I feel anecdotally like there was kind of a podcaster reaction against um, yes. these these closed bald gardens in podcasting popping up. And podcasters actually you know, wanted their podcast to not be indexed anymore by some of these applications. Um, because they were very much motivated by the ethos of podcasting, which historically has been very open. And so I think like there, there does need to be an appeal to a higher set of um, values, I think, to get users and developers to care as well in yeah. the application world. Yeah, totally. But the thing I was going to bring up with that, which is 
interesting as a case study is uh, no matter how many people kind of, I don't want to say no matter how many, but in podcasting, it doesn't seem like it was enough people to sort of stop the emergence of a more centralized player. Um, and it would be interesting if I was Spotify or YouTube, I could look at this NFT phenomenon. I could realize that's new revenue stream. That's good for creators on our platforms, helps them make more money. And it's good for us because we have better creators who, you know, want to make money and they don't go somewhere else to do it. Um, and they have sort of a choice. Like, could we integrate with Ethereum and build it on, on that blockchain? Sure, we could. We could also just do it in a centralized way and it would probably also work and retain a lot yeah. of power. And so why should they do it in a, like, cause if you think about it, uh, you could have it such that there's only sort of like the artist says, here's what the NFT is. And then they could just integrate with the blockchain where they just display whoever is the owner of it, you know, and like they just read from the blockchain. Um, they would just be like, you know, an email client. Like mm -hmm. they would be commoditized at that point. Yes. The power would live with Ethereum, which is sort of controlled yes. by nobody. Um, so like, why would they do that? Why would they give that up? I think they give it up because there is a tide of user sentiment that is unable to be restrained. Mm -hmm. Like users are voting with their feet and they're saying that interoperability matters to me and I don't want to be locked into just having my NFTs on this one application. I, I think Mark Zuckerberg's um, recent meta presentation was actually really interesting in this light uh -huh. because I think what everyone expected him to say was like, we're creating this metaverse and it's going to be closed and we're going to sell advertising all over it and gather more user data. But instead he at least paid lip service. Um, I, I don't know mm -hmm. how, what the real story is, but like he said all of the right things with respect to, being interoperable with other applications involving NFTs, like true NFTs, right. um, enabling users to port over the assets that they buy here to this other experience. Um, and I, upon hearing that, I my thinking was, this means that crypto is a movement that cannot be stopped. Like it yeah. has won the hearts and minds of users. And if and if Meta wants to build the same experience, but not on crypto. Um, my interpretation was like, they thought that that was going to be a losing proposition to yeah, users. Yeah, totally. It's interesting. Kind of what comes to mind for me is that quote, like there's two ways to make money, bundling and unbundling. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like, there's two ways to make money, like integrating or like owning or something like that, or like being centralized. And if you, like, it sort of goes through seasons where it's like, okay, when the internet very first came out, the way to make money was to be AOL. And then at a certain point, that was no longer the way to make money. People realized there was a wide open web out there that was outside of AOL and you could have better sort of like cleaner experiences with less sort of like sponsored content from your browser cluttering your view. And so people moved to that in mass, right? Um, and then and, and, and then there were, you know, relatively closed networks like, you know, Facebook and, 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 and YouTube and all these places that like kind of uh, sprung up because of it. And now maybe there's this realization that the opportunity for growth and to make money is to help support the emergence of this new platform. And by joining forces with that, it's ultimately, you won't control it as much, but it's such a big pie and maybe it feels kind of inevitable that you'll be in a better position for the future right. than if you try and be AOL where it's like, okay, yes. if you can make it work, then that's better. But 
can you actually make it work? Can you, can your sort of like floodgates hold back everyone, you know, from like actually just getting what they want basically. Um, and I think Facebook probably right now amongst uniquely amongst like Apple, Google, um, Microsoft, Facebook. Um, I don't think Netflix really belongs in that, um, (laughs) as like a company, by the way, just like the whole thing thing. I think Facebook, um, uniquely feels weak. And they're probably in the unbundling phase where they're giving up control yeah. in order to, A, maybe just help from a PR perspective, but B, they're probably worried about the network effect of Facebook. Um, and and whereas I think Apple is probably the most confident right now and maybe right. Microsoft to some degree, but Microsoft has a little bit more open DNA these days, it seems like, just loosely. I'm not fully sure, but... I, I do think Zuck is a student of business strategy And he's, you know, he's led this company since its inception. And I think there's two paths. There's like the classic innovators dilemma of let's ignore it and hope it goes away because it's going to erode our margins and our profitability. Or if we don't seize upon this opportunity, we're going to get disrupted by it. Yeah. And, And so I think he's in a unique position as the founder of the company to make the call of, yeah, we're going to sacrifice profits. And in fact, they're investing, I think, like $10 billion a year in this new effort um, because they want to avoid disruption. And I think that's a bet that not every CEO is in a position to make, but people have a lot of confidence in him as the founder CEO um, who, you know, brought this company into existence to continue stewarding it. Yeah. For people who don't know, what would what would be the way that Facebook, specifically their metaverse stuff or maybe other things, mm-hmm. integrate with blockchains? Well, a lot of the, I mean, I think their announcement was extremely high level and a lot yeah. of it was kind of like a, a vision statement without specific a specific roadmap behind it. And so I think a lot of this is like TBD too early to tell. We'll see exactly how it gets implemented. But um, they sh- they showed essentially their interpretation of the metaverse to be this like virtual reality experience um, where you know the next generation of the internet is not something you interact with on a two D screen, but in- it's instead this immersive experience where you put on a Facebook headset mm-hmm. and go into this world that is even richer and more engaging than perhaps your real life environment. Um, And you can imagine that if that is the case, if they manage to pull this off and have people inhabiting this virtual environment where they can talk to others, communicate, work virtually, um, shop virtually, then there's a whole other surface area then for all types of um, user engagement, content creation, transactions that happen, digital content that gets created. And so a lot of those digital assets I envision could be NFTs right. that users own that persist in that environment and could be taken from application to application. Um, third-party developers could potentially build applications on top and you could bring your digital assets over. Um, things like that uh, is probably what they're envisioning. Gotcha. So like to tie it to one of our favorite uh, things to theorize about, if I bought some loot let's say, uh, you know, and I'm in some Facebook metaverse thing 
it would be able to connect potentially to like my MetaMask yes. Yes. and then see, ah, he's got loot and maybe loot has some way of describing how it should be displayed in a, right. a VR environment. And so now I've got my loot with me, you know, and it, it's not controlled by Facebook. Like there's other open right. formats for specifying maybe how, you know, ownable 3D object things could behave and what fun functionality they could have and all that kind of stuff. And Facebook, there's like, is there some standard? I feels like there's got to be some standard emerging now for sort of like, um, like open 3D, at least displaying characters or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like there's yeah. got to be a standard around that. I'm not sure. I haven't studied the landscape that well. Um, but yeah, I think what you're describing is probably close to what their vision is. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine that like, you know, they connect your wallet, they see what DAO tokens you hold and yes. what DAO memberships you're a part of and what you're engaging on in terms of governance. And maybe that is used as a way to surface other internet communities to you that you would find interesting and engaging. So yeah, probably something probably along those lines. Right. Yeah. So not only could I like, you know, have some cool shield or whatever in some kind of game type world that is like a loot shield or whatever. Also, because maybe I uh, own like a board ape, then I get access to some special room where the board mm -hmm. ape yacht club people are and I get access to, I mean, there's all sorts of things that it's, it's, it's equipment, it's avatar clothing, it's um, access to certain places. Uh, like it could be a ticket essentially. Right. What what else could it be? <laughs> like an NFT basically. This is why when Chris Dixon said an NFT is more akin to like a web page than anything else, it's like, a web page is so general purpose. We're on a web page right now. We're yes. recording a podcast with audio and video. Like this is a web page. What's also a web page is Wikipedia. What's also a web page is a place to buy tickets to a thing. It's it's also, yeah. you know, there's so many things web pages can be. So these are some of the things that NFTs can be basically is like yeah. objects that get you at exactly almost unlimited functionality. Completely. I, I think a lot of this is already in place today or we're starting to see the hints of it um these types of experiences that we're outlining but i think the facebook vision is really like putting it into this virtual right world interface and um betting that people want to engage with them in a more 3d environment versus on a on a website right which exactly. i'm i'm not entirely sure about that but that's another topic yeah, like I'm, I'm way more bullish on the uh, you know board ape yacht club airport lounge than I am on the board ape yacht club Facebook metaverse destination. Just being honest with you, like I think NFTs plus like NFC in our phones is gonna be like mm, way bigger cool. yeah. than like for just real world shit, right? Like I mean, like credit card points or whatever. Like you you you, you could earn them as some sort of token. Right? right and like you could buy them and sell them on a marketplace like i don't know i think there's a lot of interesting use cases for tokens of various sorts that uh you know will interface with the real world and with just regular old 2d websites in ways that yeah. will provide plenty of functionality putting on a pair of vr or AR glasses to me feels like probably not the most efficient way most of the time for most of the things people want. Agreed. I'm not saying it won't be a thing. It's just like, it'll be kind of like a TV, you know? It's like, we use TVs sometimes, but it doesn't mean it it erases our phones and our computers right. or anything. Like, it's like, it's just, it's good sometimes for some reasons. Yeah. 
Agreed. So are you in, like interested in investing companies doing like VR stuff or like what, what is the kind of like, I mean, cause we've gone on this sort of like a little tan- metaverse tangent, but I'm just curious, like what are the things that make sense to you like right now? Yeah. So um, broadly speaking, we're investing in the ownership economy thesis, wherever that happens to be happening. Yeah. Um, and so any sort Rider of collectives, yes, <laughs> any sort of product or service or platform that has a vision of user ownership um, or is grounded in user ownership of some sort is really in our wheelhouse. Um, and so right now, uh, there's a number of areas that we're focusing on. I'm personally like very interested in what comes next in terms of social networking and social mm. media. Um, like what does the next generation social network look like? Yeah. Do you think the content is on chain? Like when I post a tweet, does it get, it's like a, it's like a transaction essentially on Ethereum? Or I do. I, I do think that more of the content is going to be on chain. There's some limitations right now to actually be able to store um, content on chain. It's quite expensive to do that, but I think those costs are going to come down over time. And I think more of the content that we create is going to go on chain and there's going to be, you know, a record of it and you'll be able to easily look up, you know, who was the first person with this idea. Right. Um, there could potentially be value, um, transfer that is embedded in the logic of, you know, when you create a piece of content that references someone else's work on chain, like there could be programmable money flows through mm. that, yeah. uh, which is super interesting. Um, we're also spending a lot of time in marketplaces. Uh, we love mar- marketplaces, um, like NFT marketplaces or any sort of financial marketplace. Um, also really interested in DAOs. Uh-huh. I think DAOs represent a lot of potential in terms of the future of online work. Like to me, a lot of the thesis of the passion economy was that there's this generational shift in how people want to work and earn income and they don't mm-hmm. want to be tied to a specific full-time job for the next 30 years of their life. Instead, they want more flexibility and autonomy um, to pursue what it is that they want to do in that specific moment. And I think being a contributor to DAOs uh, enables that vision of like a portfolio of income in a really powerful way. Mm. What are some DAOs now that are like the closest to this that are kind of like leading the way? Yeah, there's a, there's like so many um, DAOs right now that people are a part of and contributing to and earning ownership of. That's the critical thing, by the way, is as a member of a DAO, um, you're earning the DAO's native token in most mm-hmm. cases for your contributions, which you can think of as like, essentially like a share of a cooperative um, or like a, a piece a, a, a portion of stock and that token can appreciate in value over time. And so yeah. it's not like you're just getting paid cash um, that you spend. It, you're actually accruing these assets that can grow in value and be a long-term investment. Um, I would say like there's definitely a DAO renaissance that's happening right now. There's probably like a hundred new DAOs springing up every single week, mm-hmm. um, each with their own different, missions but there's um i i sort of categorize the dao landscape into various different buckets depending on the use case that they're going after and the type of mission that they're focused on there's social daos where the goal is just to bring people together they they vibe they meet they connect they make new friends Mm -hmm. so fwb would be in this category 
Um, then there's the investment DAOs. Do you think that like kind of mm-hmm. NFT projects that have like, you know, whatever, 10,000 editions like CryptoPunks, Board Out Club, and then a million more that I don't really understand yeah. fit in the, like kind of similar to the social DAO thing or what's yeah, the key difference? Yeah, I do. I do actually think that they fit into the social DAOs, except that the application criteria goes from purchasing the DAO's token and completing an application form to purchasing the specific NFT. Right. Um, but it's it's still a social DAO in the sense that people are there to really socialize and connect with each other and bond over shared interests. Right. Okay. So social DAOs. What was the other one you were going to say next? Oh, I was going to say investment DAOs. There's mm. like a, a broad bucket of DAOs that are pooling together capital and trying to purchase assets. Okay. So investment DAOs. Another good one with that is, um, what is it? Pleaser DAO? Mm-hmm. And there, yeah. what is Pleaser DAO buying? Yeah, so I'm a member of PleaserDAO. Um, PleaserDAO is this uh, DAO that was formed initially to purchase one of People Pleaser's um, pieces. I think her Genesis NFT on Foundation. Um, People Pleaser is this NFT artist who's um, who is really incredible and has done really well. Um, so originally, it was conceived of to purchase one of her pieces of art, and then they just continued to pull together capital and purchase other really culturally significant pieces of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so they purchased the Doge meme. Okay. Um, right. I remember this. Yeah. They purchased the original Doge. Right. The original Doge. Um, they so purchased, you sort of own a piece of the original Doge. Yes. You could say that. Yeah, definitely. Um, they've also purchased like the Edward Snowden um, NFT that went to the Freedom of the Press foundation oh cool yeah yeah Yeah, and there's been a number of others um but some of these investment DAOs look like you know groups of friends buying things together some of them look like almost like vc firms like there's pretty professional operations and they're really trying to source and invest in deals but they're doing it all entirely on chain um and then there's another broad bucket of product DAOs or mm-hmm. protocol DAOs that are actually building software together and shipping a product into the world. Right. Like I'm familiar with some in the DeFi space that mm-hmm. are essentially controlled by DAOs. Like I think Curve, Uniswap, yep. some yep. of these, SushiSwap, like they've got DAOs basically in control of them rather than traditional exactly. corporations. Or PartyBid, um, PartyDAO mm-hmm. is the the DAO that created PartyBid, which is um, this platform that lets you buy nfts together with other people right so how does that work i mean so there's part uh, you have a product like mm-hmm. let's use party dow as an example so the, the party bid is a product mm-hmm. and uh the owner of that product is technically a dow or do they have like a c-corp that kind of like technically owns it but then like how does that i work? don't think there's any legal entity i think it exists entirely on chain um, and so, yeah, essentially this organization got formed through a crowdfund initially on Mirror mm-hmm. that raised probably around $100,000 um, to fund the development of PartyBid, which is this product to purchase NFTs together with strangers or with friends. Right. And it's like anyone can kind of form their own group of bid to buy an yeah. NFT. You don't need to full on form a DAO, right? It's like Correct. a one-off Yes, it's like a one-off. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so the DAO then then had this treasury of capital that it could use to 
pay the salaries of engineers and contributors to build this product. And the DAO members voted on, you know, approving who are the developers going to be. This is going to be the V1 roadmap. This is how much we're going to pay all of the contributors. Um, so it's really been kind of this community-driven effort to build and ship this product into the world. Right, right, totally. Um, another bucket of DAO that I'm not sure if this is one of your buckets you would put, but I'm just curious about are the ones where people, it's kind of like a competitor to Upwork. Uh, it's like the kind of freelancer marketplace ones. Mm, I forget yes. what it's called, but I've, I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, this to me seems very relevant for the passion economy thesis, right? Of like making the passion economy more of the owner economy. Like, is that something that like a kind of category that you're interested in or? Totally. Yes. Yes. Um, I probably the marketplace that you're thinking of is brain trust. Yes. Brain trust. That's what it is. Yes. Yes. It's yeah, it is. Um, brain trust is a marketplace, a freelancer marketplace that's connecting like fortune 500 companies to freelancers, but everyone gets ownership tokens, um, proportional to their contribution to the network. Mm -hmm. And so if you refer someone, you'll get tokens. If you do work, that's great. Um, you'll get tokens. Mm -hmm. And so there's this additional layer of ownership on top of a traditional marketplace. Right. So if I want like, I don't know, a website designed or something like that, what do I do? You would, well, so I'm not entirely sure if you would be the target customer because it is mostly enterprise focused, but, um, it functions essentially similarly to any traditional freelance marketplace where um, you could get connected with professionals who are skilled in, in various domains. Mm-hmm. And then you would pay a price um, that would go to that professional. Totally. But like using MetaMask, I guess, right? Like instead of... Well, a lot of the transactions are, are taking place in still us dollars oh and fiat okay so i would still like you know use like whatever bill pay or yes exactly but then there's an additional token um that you would earn as part of being part of the network oh like for hiring someone i get a token um i would have to double check exactly the set of actions but um conceptually it's like yeah every everyone who's a valuable part of the network would receive the brain trust token Oh, that's cool. Cause yeah, I could see where it's like, instead of paying USD and getting the services, I get the services and a token. Yes. And I'm incentivized now to continue using this exactly. agency for the services. Cause I want my token to yeah. go up in value and I get more of the token anyway. It's kind of like a loyalty program. It is. It is. And it, it really doubles as, um, yeah, is as this user acquisition incentive. Right. Brain Trust has never actually spent money on marketing. It's just really grown organically. Yeah. And I credit a lot of that to the fact that people are getting this token and are just incentivized as a result to help the network grow. Yeah. Um, there's another bucket of DAOs that I forgot to mention, which is really after this conversation, which is the media DAOs or creator yeah. DAOs, like DAOs that are essentially putting content out into the world um, as a collaborative effort and everyone has ownership um, interest in the DAO through the DAO token. Totally. Did you, uh, do you consider a part of this uh, Gabby Goldberg's dam 
decentralized autonomous media, media network. network. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I haven't kept close um, track of it, but yes, that that is definitely an example. I would also point to like um, Kyle Chaka's Dirt publication, um, and then there's other emerging ones um, around like creators who are setting up token gated discords and and using their social token to gate the community. And so everyone is incentivized to help the creators succeed because they own um, a portion of those social tokens. Right. Totally. This is a model, obviously, that I'm <laughs> I'm very interested in. Um, and I'm I'm very curious what you think about like this potential design. So I don't know if we would do this or not, but this is a way that makes sort of sense to me. But in a I have I have very low uh, certainty about this opinion, but because I, I know that I there's a lot that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know what I don't know, but I, mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming there's a lot of it. <laughs> but um, anyway, here's here's what I'm thinking. Okay, so let's say every, you can buy a subscription the normal way using your credit card and Stripe and paying in USD. Or you could buy a token that you need to hold in order to maintain access a certain amount. Yeah. And we burn a certain amount every year for you to continue to gain access basically of that token mm-hmm. from you. Um, like your but, token balance is going down. Over yeah. Time. Like you, your token you're, balance like is going down over token. time. Okay. But the more valuable the token becomes in terms of USD or whatever, the less we burn. Right. So mm-hmm. you have an incentive to buy more of the token now for two reasons. One, uh, mm. you will get a discount effectively on future years. If you pre-buy, right because you right. bought it while it was cheap. And two, you might just want to sell it and like speculate on the value of the token going up. And so it's a way to sort of blur the lines between investing and subscribing, um, which I really yeah. love because I, we thought like, oh, it'd be cool to do like a crowdfund type thing. Like, cause basically for us, we really don't want to go out and do the sort of like, you know, whatever, $5 million seed round thing that everyone mm-hmm. are doing these days because- well, A, like, you know, why give up the control and, and equity kind of, uh, you know, if you don't have to. B, it just feels like we want to preserve our optionality for what kind of company this might become. And we have a lot of optionality right now. We've raised a little bit of money, but not a ton. So for us and our early investors, even if the outcome is kind of small on an absolute basis, like we're not going to, it's still it's still a win for everybody and, and for us. Um but but then, you know, doing some sort of crowdfund type thing with traditional equity is like really painful and hard. Yeah. And there's this really hard. It's it's very illiquid, and there's this very hard sort of like a minimum requirement of like at least a couple thousand bucks. Right. Um, but like, and the transaction fees and the legal costs and all that stuff. But if we had a token where it's pretty fluid, you can get liquid whenever you want to out of it, and you can buy ahead now if you want right. to, or just like not, you know. And like it's it's you could invest more later. You can make the decision whenever you want. It's like a much better world, um, I think. That is really interesting. Um, I would have to think specifically about that mechanism that you outlined of like yeah. burning some portion of your tokens over time. Um, such that you would either be incentivized to buy more upfront or, um, I, I don't know, I guess, yeah, the incentive would be to buy more upfront if you think you're going to subscribe for a long time. Yeah. 
if you think you're going to subscribe for a long time and you think the value of our token is going to go up, then you should buy more now, basically. Right. Um, and, and basically spend it down over time. Right. Yeah. I wonder if it could be just accomplished through something simpler. Yeah. Of just needing a minimum token balance in order to access the publication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then people can buy more if they think that right. it's going to do well and the token price is going to appreciate the, the main thing that I don't like about you just have to hold a certain amount is it removes recurring revenue from the equation, which I think is really important. Correct. Yes, you're right. It does. I basically don't want it to be Ponzi-nomic where we're constantly relying on the supply of new users, like the inflows of new users exceeding. But okay, how about you could remove, you could still get to recurring revenue if you make the token supply inflationary. Mm-hmm. And then you're selling out of the treasury some portion of these tokens on a recurring basis. Oh, interesting. What what is making the treasury supply inflationary mean? I'm not sure if I understand let's, that. Yeah, if like let's say the total supply of tokens is a hundred in year one, but then mm-hmm. it inflates by ten percent every year. Okay. And that ten percent goes into your treasury, and you just sell them. Oh, interesting. Kind of so like how the U.S. Of, government funds itself. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. So instead of um. Instead of burning users' tokens in order to and forcing them to either have enough pre-bought yeah. or buy more in order to um, continue reading, we would just print more tokens for ourselves every year. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, which is what, like you said, what the U.S. government does. Damn, that's fascinating. That's so weird. It's so weird that like business models uh for like individual companies that just provide a relatively straightforward service like oh it's a media company and you can pay to get access to our stuff now have the sort of opportunity potentially to use the same tools of central bankers to fund their operations i think it's incredible yeah tell me about like how do you i would feel so scared to sort of do that because i'm like oh my god it feels like i'm not fucking like alan greenspan like what do i well i think it's actually really exciting this is one of the parts of crypto that gets me the most excited is Uh holy crap like everyone can create their own societies and countries Mm -hmm. essentially and economies with their own set of economic policies right and they can do so in a few lines of code versus having to start a new country and go through a civil war and whatever and that's so exciting because that the the pace of iteration and the possibility for experimentation is just so vast. And then we can take what w- is working well mm-hmm. in the cryptoverse and port it back into the real world mm. where the pace of iteration is much slower. And so you could test new policies like UBI. You could yeah. implement like a, a DAO UBI where every contributor to the media publication gets an airdrop of tokens every month that pays for their basic expenses and see what impact that has on their content quality or, you know, pace of content production or whatever. Yeah. And then you could learn from that and say like, maybe we should try this in the real world. Oh my God. Um, Web three laboratory of democracy. I feel like that's a blog post (laughs) waiting to be written. Yes, absolutely. I I completely believe this. So I really do think you should think of yourself as Alan Greenspan and feel empowered to do Mm. these things. I basically want to learn more of like who's doing this because like I'm not sure if I want to be like the first person on the dance floor, but I definitely want to be on the perimeter observing. Yeah, I mean, everyone's a little bit nervous, I think. Right. Because you're dealing with real money and real people here. 
but um two plugs that i'll make one is there was a blog post um a while ago that was published um by my friend near and joey de bruin um they wrote about tokenized SaaS. i thought that was really great um i haven't seen this actually get implemented by anyone actually but uh someone is thinking about doing this sari sari azut those are some folks to follow and read up on um but yeah, I, I think we're still just so early. I mean, it pains me to always say like, it's still so early because I just want to see how it all plays out. But sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think there is much room for experimentation with right. new business models. One thing that occurred to me while you were talking about, oh, everyone can kind of create their own currency and their own nation is like a thing that people say when they hear that is, well, that's super annoying because I don't want to have to deal with like 17 different currencies if I'm dealing with 17 different, you know, yeah. like service providers. Like currencies kind of have network effects too. It's nice for everybody yeah. to be using the same currency. Um, one potential solution is maybe it's just a lot easier to go from one thing to another thanks to things like Uniswap or whatever, especially in a world where gas is very cheap, where it's very easy to get liquidity amongst like, in kind of a multipolar world where there's a whole bunch of different things that you might be holding or using to transact. Uh, I'm curious what you make of it though. Like, do you think that that's going to be a pain, but worth it? Do you mm. think it's actually not going to be a problem? Like how, the, how will that work? The other way that I've put this before, well, I think this is another angle on it, which is, um, is there a Dunbar's number for ownership? for assets mm. that we can care about. Because essentially each of these tokens is um, ownership in a yeah. particular organization or initiative, but is there a ceiling on the number of things that we can own and really still care about? Um, and I, I feel like intuitively the answer is probably yes, Yeah. Um, but I don't know what that number is. Like anecdotally, an, an analogy here is like angel investors who are prolifically um, investing in companies, they don't know what's going on in all of their companies. They, they can't right. just like they, it can, it's physically impossible to stay on top of everything. Yeah. They have to really just focus on the ones that need their help the most or ones that are doing the best right. and are, have the most promise. And so intuitively it does feel like people are, if they have so many of these different tokens, they're, they're going to end up not being able to participate or really care about, all of them, but having to pick and choose and prioritize. And then um, with respect to the network effects element, I think that people are going to create these like portfolios for themselves where they don't think of the token as like an asset that they're going to engage with on a super frequent basis. Like they're not right. entering into and exiting out of these positions really frequently, but they're treating them as almost like a mini investment portfolio totally. or access keys into different communities that they're a part of. And obviously there's some communities that you engage with more frequently and some that you engage with once a year, but as long as you have them in your wallet, it's relatively frictionless to pop right. in or out. Totally. That, that makes a lot of sense to me because um, to me, there are a couple factors that sort of like gate the number of things, like my Dunbar number, you know, of like how many of these things can I have a relationship with? One is just like attention. Like if I'm getting mm -hmm. a lot of utility and I'm paying a lot of attention and I'm and I'm actively engaged in the thing quite often, then that's awesome and it's pretty easy for me to keep, you know, holding the coin or 
kind of keeping an eye on uh, the value of it or whatever. If I'm not using it that much, then yeah, that that's going to be less. And I only have so much attention and time. Right. And I only have so many problems or tools that I want to use to solve those problems. Right. Um, another is like, you know, I have a portfolio of assets in like my Robinhood and that could be kind of high. Because yes. some of them, I have larger holdings than others. And the ones that yes. I have larger holdings, I'll pay closer attention than the ones that yes. I have relatively small holdings. And I can have a longer tail of small holdings because it's just all right there in one aggregator app interface. Right. If I had to go a whole bunch of different places to manage all those things, I mean, that would be a pain. Right. It's kind of right. like how many credit cards do you want to have aside from the impact on your credit score or whatever, any of that other stuff. It's like you just don't want to have to manage that many different relationships. With. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of consolidate, even though maybe I could have two or three. I like to have one because, you know, it's yeah. just less work uh, to you don't have to go to separate places. And that actually does bring up an underlying thing of crypto, which is so great, which is um, because all of this stuff is just, you know, entities in a public blockchain. Anyone can build a wallet that shows you all of your things. And if you don't like that wallet because it starts to suck one day, you can go to some other wallet, right? Um, so it's like the new sort of like email app thing, you right. know, where, uh, which which brings a question of like, if there's any power in that, like, is, is there power in MetaMask, do you think? Like, is there, like, it seems like it's, uh, you know, a plug-in to another thing that has power more so than having power itself. Um, I think that it is definitely a very important piece of um, infrastructure for Web3, the wallet, mm -hmm. because it is, it's such a um, high frequency used application that it's naturally going to be able to step into all sorts of different value flows. Sure. So the wallet makes sense as the, the place in which you I mean, at a high level, it's the place where you keep all your stuff in Web3. Right. Like all of your assets live tied to your account and the wallet is the interface for that account. And so it's where you see all of your crypto tokens, both fungible and non-fungible. It's oftentimes where users go to swap assets into another. Um, and so there's lots of opportunities, I think, for it to layer in a transaction fee and actually become a really valuable business in and of itself as a wallet. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also interesting because to your point, it is, it's, it's, on, it's in, in the web three world, it's akin to like a email, um, application like Gmail yeah. where anyone can build a wallet and the moment that a, a user ties it to their account, like it has all your stuff in it still. Um, right. and so the, the switching costs are relatively lower for wallets. Um, but I think I mean, the end winner in all of this, this is the theme of Web3, is the consumer who has a lot more choices right. for applications that are going to have to compete on the basis of providing the best experience versus locking users in. Fascinating. Well, I'm curious, like, kind of getting to some of the broader themes. Like, I'm sure there are going to be people listening who are like, I like want to pitch Lee the thing right <laughs> and i'm curious like you know there's this broad theme of the owner economy right mm -hmm. um what are the most common like mistakes you think like what are the sort yeah. of misconceptions that you keep hearing that you hope when people pitch you they don't make those misconceptions 
Well, okay. So there's a lot of broad misconceptions about the ownership economy that I hear from the general public or, or from critics. Um, I think a lot of people have misunderstood what we mean by the ownership economy and take it to mean that we believe that everyone should be an entrepreneur and everyone should own their own small business. And specifically in the context of the creator economy, people are oftentimes like creators shouldn't all own their own small business. They, they can't even manage their own finances. You know, the ownership economy is not saying that everyone should literally start their own small business and become an owner that way. Mm-hmm. It's saying that people should become part owners of the products and services that they're using every single day that they're contributing value to. Um, if you use a piece of software and you're contributing liquidity to it, you should become compensated in ownership, not just income. That, that is what we mean by the ownership economy. Um, other misconceptions or mistakes. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of pitfalls along the way as we figure out a lot of these business models and like how to actually distribute ownership on a detailed level. Like one of the issues that I'm seeing right now play out is, this tension between using tokens to incentivize early adopters and early usage of a product to overcome the bootstrapping problem, essentially, um, versus how do we just how do we avoid the rich get richer effect of the insiders who are in these networks of information, um, right. who have like, you know, the most privileged access to early products? How do we avoid them from just accruing all the wealth? Right. Um, I think that's that's a, a big challenge um, that I think about a lot because, um, I mean, we recently saw with the ENS airdrop that people got a non-negligible amount of money from this airdrop, but the people who probably had the ENS domains um, early on were people who were already in crypto and right. who already have non-negligible wealth and resources to even purchase an ENS domain in the first place. And so it's, it just compounds upon itself versus there's people getting left behind who don't know about crypto need to be educated about it. And they're being left out of these airdrops and ultimately like this wealth creation opportunity. Yeah. I'm not sure how to mitigate that, (laughs) but I think like thoughtfully designing tokenomics systems and token distribution such that not all of the tokens go to just the early adopters, but there's some sort of inflationary supply that you reserve for future, you know, latecomers and late adopters. Right. Um, I think that's really important. Like me. Think of the, yeah. think of the poor. Think like of Nathan. <laughs> when are you going to Redistribution to Nathan. <laughs> exactly. Can we redistribute a little bit my way? Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. I, this is interesting to me because I don't know what it was like in the nineties when there was tons of hype, but it was still really early with just like the internet where the internet so clearly has won. It's like absolutely Mm -hmm. what everyone thought it would be in the nineties. I don't know if there was some other group that like hated the internet in the nineties and they thought it was a scam, you know, but like, absolutely. There's a lot of people who think that crypto is all of crypto is a scam and it, it's it's fraud, it's money laundering, right. it's Ponzi schemes, it's just pure scam, basically. And, oh, and it you know pollutes the environment, all that stuff. And yeah. 
there are lots of frauds, there are lots of scams, there are lots of Ponzi schemes, and it does pollute the environment. But all those things are a not all of crypto, and b salt like in the case of the environmental yes. stuff, I think extremely solvable. Yes. Um, and so, what's interesting to me is it feels like we have a culture war that yeah is not going to be there's not going to be like a clear win maybe the same way that there was with the internet. Cause I don't know if with the internet there was as clear of a resistance. And the worst thing about being on the resistance of this is with the internet, it's like, okay, there are definitely the people who like made lots of money on like, you know, the dot com boom and all that stuff. And like the people right. who didn't because they, they, they didn't found one of those companies or invest in one of those companies early on. But crypto is like a whole different scale of things. Yes. It's like, I think there's a lot of people who won't want to adopt it because they don't want to help people win who they feel like they hate. Hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the people who are really skeptical about crypto are people who could economically benefit the most. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think the dynamic here is, you know, unlike being an early adopter of the internet, which probably translated into having a big following on these social media platforms and having, you know, early clout. Um, now there's real economic value associated with being early. Yeah. And it's akin to like being an early settler of a new continent or country right. and accruing a lot of the resources and land first. I mean, literally that is some of what's going on in these virtual worlds and new games that are emerging people are purchasing up the assets and the land the virtual land mm -hmm. because they think that the game is going to take off and they can earn yield on these assets and it it's a little bit worrying to me because um yeah there's going to be the mainstream and the, the late adopters who come and then all of the land is sold out and their choice is to now exert their labor and their time Right. To, to make money off of someone else's land. Yeah. Different interpretation of the uh, ownership economy. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the version that, that I want to see come to fruition where ownership yeah. is concentrated in this kind of feudal society. The nice thing is there's less scarcity in yes. crypto space. Yes, exactly. Than there is and, in physical space. Right. Because there's only certain choke points where it's like, oh, this is a good port location, or this is a critical point on a river, or something like that, that are like where cities make sense to have, you know? And then, yeah, uh, you know, if you were early there and you just happened to like have a large swath of land that at one point was right. a farm and then it became parceled up into a bunch of different things that you sold or just continued to own and collected rent to keep, let people build buildings and all that kind of stuff, like, you know then uh, whatever, there's not a lot of 100%. alternatives. But in crypto space, there's lots of alternatives. 100%. And I think there's going to be a lot more competition because of right. the open data um, and things being built on top of these open standards, which means that the ability to start a new network and mm -hmm. to not have such a difficult problem catching up to the existing networks um, is, is going to engender more competition for right. users and more user-friendly policies makes you wonder about the people who are buying up all the land the virtual land like maybe it's kind of a skeuomorphic investment that makes a little bit less sense in this new context i think it can still be really lucrative because it's difficult to create a compelling new experience and, right. and for the time being like users do 
want to play the same game that their friends are playing and and to play those games sometimes they need these assets so it can still make a a ton of sense um and and yeah there's like definitely um organizations and people that are making a killing on some of these virtual assets but i think the difference is there's going to be ultimately less lock-in right than there was in the old world of closed off gaming or social networks yeah totally totally by the way have you ever heard the term skeuomorphic investment before because i just made it up i think it's very cool i'm very proud of myself skeuomorphic investment um yeah. no but it makes sense to me like you're buying virtual land it's like yeah come on yeah, that's exactly. perfect um, anyway sorry i just had to pat myself on the back for that one i'm sorry everyone listening is probably like oh my god nathan that's that's ridiculous of you <laughs> But I think it should be a thing. That should be a term. I don't care if I get credit or not. <laughs> I like it. I dig it. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for for spending all this time and uh, sharing all of your thoughts. And it's been fun to riff on all this with you. I feel like uh, kind of like you're my friend that like went to high school one year before me. And then now I'm in high school too. And that you're like telling me how it works <laughs> kind of. Uh, so probably a little bit, I'm, I'm being a little bit generous to myself, probably more than one year ahead of me on this, but <laughs> I'll just call it that. Um, and it's been, it's been really fun. I feel like we have something new to, uh, uh, relate over and jam about. So let's, let's, uh, let's keep up the one-on-one episodes, um, on, on yeah. our cadence. What do you say? Absolutely. No, we absolutely should. And I'm so glad that you crypto pilled yourself. Um, because yeah, no exciting stuff is happening. Wouldn't want you to miss out Nathan. Don't Am I want make to make it. <laughs> you're gonna make it. We're not gonna have to aggressively redistribute to you. Yeah, you're gonna amazing. make it on your own. Okay, great. Well, uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you, Nathan. This was great. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. Bye. <laughs>